This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, thank you all for coming. This is our 14th annual peer-to-peer uh, Dean's Distinguished Speaker um, event. Um, since this is the Dean's Distinguished Speaker event, you might be asking yourself, where is the dean? Um, and um, he had a family emergency and couldn't be here, had to, had to leave um, town last weekend. Um, but he sends each of you his warmest wishes and welcome um, and apologizes that he can't be here. Um, I also want to um, acknowledge our sponsors and our event host, Blue Shield of California. Thank you. Uh, they have an incredible talent and recruitment team, uh, some of them who are here, Nick Fitzpatrick, uh, Kathy Mason, and Safani Tedesi. Are any of them here? Ah, say hello. Uh, we also have some great MBA alumni who work at Blue Shield, so we've met Cyrus, um, Brian Jubron, is he, Brian's here, yay, Paige O'Connell, and Julie Peterson. Julie, is she here? Not here, here. okay. Um, Thank you, Blue Cross, or Blue Shield for, for, whoops. Blue Shield for, and I really, I just slapping myself for that. I also want to thank some of our other GSM donors who are here and our business partners who are in attendance. Um, so we've got Broadcom and Michael Hurlston's here. Uh, we've got, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, PG&E, um, folks from PG&E here, yay. Uh, Keiko Isom, uh, PWC, are any folks from there here? Okay, well, we'll thank them, even though they're not. Um, and finally, we have a very special guest here tonight in the audience. Um, we've got the dean of the uh, UC Davis um, School of Law, Kevin Johnson. Dean Johnson, thanks for joining us. Um, before we get into the awards, I just want to mention a few of the milestones and, and latest developments that have uh, occurred at the Graduate School of Management. First of all, we are uh, launching our new Master of Science in Business Analytics in the fall. And that program will be taught here in San Francisco um, at the Civic Center. So we've really you know, got our footprint right here in the city. Uh, we're actively recruiting for the best and brightest um, for our charter class. So if you think you're interested in, in getting another degree in business analytics, we've got folks here tonight who can talk to you about that. Um, the, this class should help um, satisfy the incredible um, growth and need for uh, people with um, uh, analytics skills, people who are good um, in maybe from computer science, but also having a, a, a business um, skill set as well. Um, and um, as you know, our digital economy is growing, so th this program is really uh, well-placed to meet that demand. We are also expanding our master's in professional accountancy. That program um, has two big uh, changes. One, we've added a 21-month program for international students that makes it easier for them to gain um, more experience in the US before um, going back to their home countries. Um, and also a nine-month um, program we've audited 
added an audit analytics specialization, which um, doesn't sound that sexy, but if you're in accounting, being an audit analytics specialist is probably about the sexiest thing you can do. So. Uh, very exciting for us, 100% of our graduates from our uh, Masters of Accounting program are hired. Uh, and they're usually hired before they graduate, well before, like six months before they graduate. Um, and they, uh, these students um, start right off, uh, hit the ground running and are making um, close to a three, uh, six figure um, uh, income right away. Um, finally, we've, um, we're introducing an MBA track focused on food and agriculture um, that will combine a management expertise and um, our UC Davis global leadership in food, nutrition, and agriculture. And in the spring, we're going to offer some courses on Saturdays um, where senior executives from food and ag will come in and work with the, with the GSM faculty um, to provide some specialization in that area. So we've got a lot of exciting programs happening at the GSM. Um, in addition to the alumni awards, I have the distinct pleasure to introduce you to tonight's Dean's Distinguished Speaker, Aimee Leipick. Um, for more than 20 years, Aimee has focused her career on online customer experience as well as in brick and mortar environments. She most recently held the position of Senior Vice President and General Manager of Banana Republic as well as a Chief Marketing Officer for BananaRepublic.com. In her role, Amy held global P&L accountability for e-commerce businesses and led creative and marketing teams across the $2.8 billion business. For the past 12 years, Amy has held numerous positions across GAP, including serving as the general manager for the $400 million international outlet business for several years. I'm a huge fan. Um, overseeing all functions um, to drive international growth while simultaneously leading Global GAP, a banana public factory store, marketing, visual, and store design teams. AMA launched marketing organizations and new revenue streams for two startups, iOwn.com, which is now Citibank Mortgage, and Headlight.com, backed by Draper Fisher Dravetson. And she currently serves as a marketing advisory board member of IDG Ventures USA, a venture capital firm focused on early stage consumer internet, enterprise, and IT investments. Amy earned her BA in English Literature from Princeton University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Please help me in welcoming Aimee uh, Lepik. Very good. I got it. All right. Thank you. Okay. So am I, am I on? I'm on. Okay. All right. Oh, um, okay. I'm very excited to be here, by the way. Thank you all. Okay. So we have some, you know, just sort of um, spontaneous questions, even though they're written down, to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, Amy, uh, many of our students and our prospective students um, are, uh, you know, looking for a future in business leadership and maybe even in marketing your, your area um, and, and building a successful career. And I'm wondering if you could talk about any particular lessons you learned um, or advice you could give them about pursuing leadership roles in their careers. Absolutely. I would say the first and foremost thing is 
really do what you love. So within marketing, there are generally a couple of different paths. There's analytical jobs where people are pretty good with numbers and they are terrific at like literally examining kind of what happened and figuring out what to do next um, from a numbers and analyticals perspective. And then there's kind of a creative route of where people are very gifted at literally um, either thinking super innovatively or actually producing phenomenal creative work. Um, and the two definitely meet, and you can do a little bit of both. But in general, you should figure out which path is the one that you would be good at and, and continue to leverage your strengths. Because if you're doing what you really love, you'll be phenomenal at it. And if you're trying to do what you should be good at in someone else's experience, in someone else's perspective, it'll always be a struggle. And generally, we spend a fair amount of time at work, as Rue alluded to. Um, and so make it fun and passionate and make it something that you really care about. So I would say that's first and foremost. Number two is surround yourself with people smarter than you, always. Like basically, think about you as an extension of your entire team. Because it's not really about just what you can do. We're all great at doing one or two things well. But it's about how well you attract really phenomenal people and how do you build them up to be even better than they are when they first arrive on your team. Um, and how do you all leverage each other's strengths to really do much more as a team? Because th that's how you accomplish so much more and how you get, you basically, you move the business forward or the product forward, et cetera. And I would say if you all love marketing, put the customer first in everything you do. Um, and there's a tendency to think about marketing in terms of like, I could sell this product or I could produce this service. And really, it all comes down to what the customer cares about. And so if you can be customer-centric first and foremost and figure out who the customer is, what they care about, what's going to resonate with them, what's relevant to them, then you'll really have a phenomenal strategy and therefore then phenomenal campaigns and a great strategy towards getting more of those type of customers and really retaining them. So I would say those are three big lessons that I've learned. Great. Well, you talk about marketing, and you have a lot of experience with digital marketing, um, especially in consumer-facing activities at The Gap and Banana Republic. But um, as you have also moved forward in your career, um, you've done a lot in, in um, uh, not face-to-face -face marketing. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the differences you see between building a team that works with consumers digitally versus traditional service roles. Um, and what, how are consumers' expectations different? And how do you have to uh, strategize in a different way? Yes. You know, it's really interesting because um, if you think about kind of traditional marketing teams before there was a lot of digital e-commerce or digital experiences, it tended, the teams that tended to do really well were very, very creative, and they could come up with campaigns that would resonate across every single touch point, meaning there would be a phenomenal billboard campaign that was also on TV, that was also in magazines, that was also in newspapers, et cetera. And that was the forte of a great team. They could do that type of creative um, campaign and really have it come to life in a variety of different touch points. Nowadays, um, consumers don't want repetition at all. And they want um, what's going to be relevant for them wherever they are. So for example, if you have a phenomenal kind of strategy, it needs to be really different than what comes to life from Instagram to what happens on, in digital um, programming media to what happens on the radio to what happens in TV. It's all, it needs to be consistent and complementary, but it needs to be different. 
And so the skill set that that requires is to be fairly analytical, as I was talking about before, and to be thinking about how am I measuring the success of this campaign or this strategy against who I'm trying to target, against how much I spent, am I getting decent returns from it or not, am I getting the reach that I expected to have, am I getting the engagement I expected to have, and if I'm not, how do I optimize it fairly quickly um, in order to really try to achieve the goals that I needed? And that's usually a pretty analytical mindset. It also requires someone who's a really, truly a problem solver, first and foremost, and is fairly hypothesis-driven. So in marketing, it's less about trying to do everything and be all things to all people, and it's much more about what are my three goals that I want to accomplish, what's my strategic hypothesis on how I want to get to those goals, and then how do I measure whether I'm being successful or not really quickly so that I can optimize in order to achieve that, if that makes sense. And can you give an example of... uh maybe an online um, a strategy that complemented a uh, print strategy in any of any of the product lines you yes. worked with? Yes, so um, it's interesting because I'd say Banana Republic five years ago had uh, prescribed to the idea that the same campaign should show up on the website as in, in email marketing as it did in TV, et cetera. In fact, when I joined two years ago as the chief marketing officer, we were basically um, looking at kind of the same type of campaign and doing two different photo shoots that would replicate the same look and feel. So, for example, there was a desert campaign in April for our spring shoot, and the online team went out and did their own photo shoot, and the stores team went out and did their own photo shoot, trying to get the same look and feel, thinking that that's what would appeal to the customers. So we spent twice as much money. We had inconsistent messages, and we didn't have anything that was really truly native um, to where the customer actually was. And so what we did was we broke all that apart, and we said, let's first think about who our customer is. And they're not two separate customers. It's the exact same customer. They just happen to come to us through different vehicles. Um, And we looked at, like, what should you be doing in social media? Like, what's our Facebook strategy? It's very different than your Instagram strategy. Instagram strategy, for example, is supposed to be very, or for us, what worked is to have much more of an aspirational, inspirational visual guide to outfitting. And in Facebook, it was much more about, like, what are the actual uh, items that I should be buying, um, which may sound a little bit similar to people who aren't in the industry, but it was more about buy now on Facebook and more about aspirational outfits for the future on Instagram. Um, And that would be different than a billboard campaign, which would show a look of the season, which would be kind of only one thing. Mm. Um, And so we we did change it up to be much more about the medium where the campaigns showed up um, and made it much more about what that customer actually cares about. Okay, interesting. Um, there's a lot of talk, if we're, if we're talking about our consumers, about how, uh, millennials. How many millennials do we have in, in the crowd here? A lot, a lot of us, okay. So, um, and how they're different from baby boomers like myself and Gen, X, uh, Gen Xers. And um, what are your observations from your experience um, in marketing and, and um, working with millennials? And are they really different? So I would say first and foremost, I don't want to generalize because it's really tough to profile an entire generation to be this kind of person. Um, so let me just say that for the record. Um, <laughs> but what, so we at um, The Gap did a lot of work on understanding the consumer shopping journey from inspiration all the way to wearing the outfits and, in fact, to the return cycle. And we followed millennial um, customers, and we also followed Gen X customers, not, not as much baby boomers for this particular study. And what we saw that there was 
the millennial customers put a lot more foresight into using digital means um, throughout the entire shopping journey. So in the beginning, a millennial customer generally um, will spend just as much time, if not more time, on Pinterest getting outfitting ideas than they would in going to the stores. So literally, 48% of millennials look onto Pinterest for outfitting inspirational ideas. That's much more than Instagram. It's much more than going actually into a store and looking around. For Gen X, it's more about going into the stores and looking around than pre-shopping um, online, mm -hmm. and definitely pre-shopping according to the um, social media websites. We also saw that millennials in general are much more comfortable buying online, not just through the e-commerce platform, but through social media websites as well. So super comfortable with, every, with all things digital and very comfortable giving feedback digitally as well. So through social media, through reviews, et cetera. Now, what's really happened, I would say, over the last five years is that generation has had a phenomenal influence on the older generations so that my generation, Gen X, is much more comfortable doing everything digitally. And in fact, the highest growth of people using social media websites is women over 40. Um, and so the one generation really does influence the other generation, and they're not so different after all. It's just one may be a little bit of a leader in certain things like being digitally savvy. Um, we've also seen that millennials tend to spend much more on experiences versus material goods, and they value things like travel and entertainment and food um, much more than Gen X would. Um, so I think it's fa fascinating, really it interesting. Fascinating. I also think the overlap and overlay between the generations is really interesting as well. Interesting. Well, given that, given all the fast-paced changes that you have to uh, face, and not just generational, but much, much more quickly than that, um, what is the most challenging marketing problem that you faced in your career, and, and how did you go about addressing it? So I would say, so every, um, every marketer generally faces pretty challenging problems in terms of you have to figure out how to acquire new customers in a cost-effective way, and you have to figure out how to continue to attract and engage existing customers. Um, and so those are two kind of fundamental problems that people are always trying to solve. So that's not actually the most challenging because it's kind of built into the job description. Um, I would say when I, about eight years ago, I joined the outlet division of Gap as the, he, the first head of marketing. And the reason I was invited to come be the head of marketing is we had been declining um, pretty significantly in terms of number of people coming to the outlets through both Gap Outlet and Banana Republic factory stores. And we call that metric traffic or footsteps into the stores. And it had been declining for double digits for over seven years. So pretty significant. Wow. And this was by far the most profitable division of the company, so it was a big deal that we were losing so much market share. And so I was given a million dollars, which isn't a lot of money in the big scheme of things, um, and six people to basically figure out how do you turn that around. Um, and that was a big challenge because, not just because of the lean re resources, but because it hadn't been done before. Um, and so what we did is we focused on the customer, just who was this outlet shopper? What did predominantly she care about? Why? Was she, was she brand loyal or was she more deal-centric? And we did a lot of work on that. Um, and we figured out kind of what messages she would respond to in terms of was it all about the, the outfit of the season or was it about shorts at $10? Um, and then we also start invested in a small media mix um, of radio versus advertorials versus email marketing versus some paid digital marketing to see kind of what would resonate the most. Um, and since we didn't have a lot of money, we placed our bets on where there would be a higher propensity to capture more market share. So in the first half of the year, Easter is a big time period for people to shop the outlets. It's much more um, popular than President's Day or um, Martin Luther King Day. So we placed our money on Easter, basically. And we bet to amplify that peak 
Um, and we won. We did really well. We started turning around the traffic. And then we continued that test and control mentality, and we were able to improve the traffic, um, our footsteps, people coming back into the store, 20 consecutive quarters in a row. Wow. So it was really amazing. It was a phenomenal team effort. Um, we took our little $1 million, $1 million budget and grew it to $10 million, and the team grew as well, and it was a really terrific experience. You know, the, the pr- approach you take there, it sounds a lot like design thinking, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sort of rapid prototyping, try it, try yes. things out. Is that a philosophy that's, that's used a lot at CAP, or is that just something that, that worked for you? Well, I'd say, it's, I'd say people use it to a certain extent at GAP. It's probably one of the things we should do more at GAP. But I would say this idea of, like, fail fast, learn, optimize, continue on, it is the key to winning in marketing because the customer is so ahead of most companies mm-hmm. that it, you don't want to be constantly trying to play catch-up. You want to try to out, you know, basically outguess and outmaneuver the customer at some point. And you can only do that if you're willing to take risks and learn from them pretty quickly. Cool. Good to know. Um, so m- many companies have next generation, um, a next generation set of digital native customers yes. who live in an all mobile social, all social world, as well as existing customers who straddle the brick and mortar and online worlds. And what are the challenges you see involved in bringing a brand story to life that spans those two different kinds of worlds? You right. talked a little bit about it, but, but not so much from the brand perspective. You know, it's interesting. I think that there are two main challenges. One is that um, while you're thinking about attracting essentially a new customer base, you have to be really careful about alienating your existing loyal customer base because that's generally how you're paying the bills. Um, and it's the critical thing is to understand what the needs are of the new mobile um, digital customer base. And, and are they truly different than their existing kind of bricks and mortar base as you're explaining it today? Um, and if they are, what, where, are the, where are the overlaps and how can you tell that story um, so that there's common ground and commonality? And then the other thing I think we need to, you need to think about is your big, next biggest challenge is where do you tell the story? Mm-hmm. Like what are the touch points that are going to resonate the most with one customer base versus the other? Because you can't assume that kind of one size fits all at that point. So you have to think about how to create a complementary story and not lose the brand essence of what you've created that's really resonated with your loyal base? And then how do you continue to do it in an innovative way that makes sense that's super relevant for both bases? It is challenging. Yeah, very interesting. Um, Well, a lot of today's chief marketing officers are also inundated with big data and are investing more and more in data analytics. I talked about our new data uh, business analytics program. Um, And... Um, my question for you is, um, are there examples of how you use data and big data um, insights in decision-making in marketing? Absolutely. I would, I would say today's marketers live and die by numbers. So first and foremost, using data to figure out who you should target um, through customer segmentation, through literally um, how do you find the customers both in your proprietary channels as well as through other means is really critical. Using data to look at the actual ROI on some of your investments so that you make sure that you're consistently looking at how to best optimize. Every company has a limited um, 
marketing budget, even if it's the world's largest budget. And so how do you think about continuously measuring your returns and optimizing? How do you think about your media mix in terms of what's working and what's not working? Um, as well as how do you continuously measure the messages that make sense in terms of engagement versus acquisition versus um, for each distinct audience? And all of that's highly, highly dependent on data. My question about uh, uh, digital um, marketing and, and marketing analytics and big data in general is, how is that complementing, you know, sort of traditional marketing approaches like consumer behavior yes. and trying to understand the psychology, more qualitative approaches yes. um, with these big quantitative approaches? Can those two be complementary, or does the um, does the data always trump the, the qualitative data? Well, there's only so much you can learn from data. You can learn who to target, where to target, um, and the type of message that will win one versus other. But you can't really figure out. I think the piece that's qualitative still is what's the story you're communicating. And that piece is very hard to test every little nuance. You, it still has to come from what the customers most care about. And a lot of that is through qualitative means, right? So we do a number of um, shop-alongs, focus groups that complement our quantitative market research at the same time because you've still got to figure out what that emotional hook is with customers. And that comes from people. It comes from actually understanding what really matters to people. So I think, think the two have to be complementary. Do you yes. think you're doing more qualitative um, work, um, just more focused types of focus groups um, now that you have more quantitative data? Yes, because we usually are hypothesis-driven on what are, you, what are you trying to find out about as opposed to, right. you know, did this campaign work? What do people think right. about it, et cetera? I think that's a really important lesson is that yes. just because we know how to manage these huge uh, masses of data quantitatively, we can't forget about the qualitative data. In fact, it becomes almost more yes. important. It's interesting because um, the brands are dependent on an emotive hook with consumers. Like the consumers have to care at the end of the day about the brand and what they're selling or what they're providing. And that comes from really understanding truly how do you connect with people. You can't get that from data. Okay. Good, good, good to know. Um, well, given that we're running kind of late at this point, I think I'm going to stop there and ask for audience questions um, to build on any of the insights that you provided or other questions that didn't get asked. So, um, yes. Yeah, just, just shout it out. So I'll tell you what I personally do, um, and then I can tell you what I did for my team. So um, I, as, as Kim yeah. mentioned yeah. earlier, I left the gap right before the holidays, um, and I've been on the CMO advisory board for um, IDG Ventures, mostly so I can get back in touch with emerging companies in technology. So I've been advising a couple of early-stage companies on what they should be doing, both because I think I can help them, I'm pretty good at building brands, but also because I want to learn. I want to be back in the, in the driver's seat of learning from companies that are digitally native from the get-go. Um, and it's been phenomenal just for me over the last year to have that experience and then to be able to do, be doing it more on a full-time basis now. Um, I, I feel like we have to build that time into our schedule. So 
working as the head of a division, it's really hard to make time to do that. But going to talks, connecting with people at conferences, staying very apprised of what are the up-and-coming technologies because venture capital firms come and pitch to you or be open to that or invite them to come, I think is really critical because it, there's so much happening, it's really easy to miss. Um, and so I've been trying to do that. I, have a small, I had a small team at Banana that would do that as well, um, that would go and listen to pitches by different companies. But I felt like I had delegated too much personally, um, so I wanted to get back and more involved. Yes? Yeah. Oh, Carla has a mic. Uh, I was wondering what's the next big thing in e-commerce that you see? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I, re I think it's interesting how much is happening through social media now and outside of e-commerce specifically. So it's really easy to buy and research, et cetera, and the communities are forming kind of around social media sites and away from the specific brands, et cetera. I think that evolution of community and what's happening will be the next version of. Now, I don't necessarily know exactly what it looks like, but I think becoming an expert on how do you build a strong community, leveraging social media as well as other touch points, will be really what defines terrific marketers of the future. Yeah, Alex. So when you were working, um, when Banana Republic Outlet was marketing um, before you came on, what were they doing wrong? What was causing the year-over-year -year downturn? I mean, it's, was it? It's such a good question. They actually weren't marketing very much. So number one, um, they didn't, in the windows, for example. So Banana Republic factory stores, there are about 200 in the com company. There are about 300 Gap Outlet stores. And in the windows, they would have the brand specialty marketing instead of what the actual outfits were that were being sold in the factory stores. And there was a big disconnect. Or they wouldn't have anything. They would just have pretty pictures and not the clothes themselves. Um, and so they weren't really leading with what they were selling and being very proud about that. That was kind of first and foremost. And they weren't investing at all in any kind of incremental media. So no radio, no advertorials, no emails even, no, no e-commerce presence, nothing. And so they kind of expected the outlets themselves to continue to have people just coming because that channel had been growing for years and years. So more people were going to the outlets. But then what happens when you have a, a highly, you know, a, cha a channel that's growing is you have more players entering the, the space. So the comp competition had been ratcheting up. And while people would be going to like the latest outlet, like a Kate Spade, for example, and not so interested in the gap anymore, which had been there for years, they weren't upping their game to try to capture more than their fair share. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Thank you. A um, little crossover here. Um, you're the CMO of Tesla as of right now. Uh, what would you do? I feel like right now, of course, I have tremendous recognition of Tesla, but I don't recall any marketing around them. Would you change that, and how so? I think what's really brilliant about Tesla is yeah. that um, they have a strong community of advocates that really believe in the product, and it's become... A marketing, the marketing is like basically in the actual community of people and users, et cetera. It's also such the right thing at this moment in time with a focus on kind of civic issues and environmental protection, et cetera, that they can only continue to take off. I think it's brilliant that they've introduced lower cost vehicles to appeal to a wider um, demographic, et cetera, and become just much more of a uh, an affordable opportunity. Um, so I don't necessarily, I think Tesla's on the 
I, I don't think there's a lot to improve there, just probably more outreach um, in terms of the media itself, but I don't think they really have anything that's broken. I think it's more amplifying what's working. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. I said I have a question right here. Yeah. Hello? Okay, yeah. awesome. Um, so my question is... <laughs> just, just speak. Yes. Okay, so two-part question. One is with the advent of the digital age, what's going to happen to brand marketing in the next 20 years or so? And the second part of the question is, um, do you think it's better to cut a budget and have limited resources? Basically, is that good or bad? Um, so I would say the answer to the first part of the question is, brands will always be important um, because there is so much choice in the world, if there's not a reason to pick one over the other, there's not a differentiating factor or key benefits or some relevance to consumers, there's no opportunity to really win. Um, and so while brand campaigns and how marketing has come to life will change dramatically over the next 20 years, I wish I could predict it because I would be a multi-billionaire if that was the case. Um, <laughs> It, the, the need for true branding and a differentiated position that means there's a reason to pick this one over this one won't go away, I don't think. Um, and in answer to your question is, I do think limited budgets bring out more innovative thinking. It definitely brings out higher returns on the marketing spend. But if you cut too much, there's, there's only so much growth you can gum from it. So for example, ROIs on limited budget can easily be in the hundreds, hundreds of dollars. So every dollar spent, you can drive hundreds of dollars in sales. But if you're only spending $10, you're only going to drive so much in the sales that you can get. So I think that there's a nice hybrid between how do you have a, a small enough budget so it, you are not really w wasting anything, but you're focused enough on the return so that you're constantly trying to grow through the spend. Um, you talked a lot about, about data uh, and analytics, uh, I guess both quantitative and qualitative data. I'm, I don't have much of a marketing background, and I'm honestly just curious to hear more about how you get that data. Yeah. Uh, I think it doesn't seem to me like it's the easiest thing in the world to actually collect that. So you know, where, where are you finding that uh, in the first place? Yeah, you're, that's right on. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest issues for marketers is that the data isn't super accessible. Um, so what you generally do is you define what the metrics are that you absolutely have to have, and you get a report. <laughs> or you get access to be able to pull the data yourself on, on a regular basis. And there, there are now 
lots of companies that can give you real-time access to information on how things are going. But what's critical is that you figure out and you prioritize what are the metrics that are going to mean something so that you're not wasting your time wading through the other data, as well as the rest of the company trying to produce all that data for you. Um, but that's kind of how you do You basically have to prioritize, be really focused on what matters, and then either get reports or get access to be able to pull the data on your own or have someone do it for you. Yeah, Leanne? Hello. You mentioned one of your greatest successes um, leading the marketing team at the Outlet Division. What would you say is your greatest leadership accomplishment, whether it's advising younger professionals or maybe managing up? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I love developing people. Like, I, I love just bringing people along and really helping to bring the best out of people. And so I would say when um, I've, I've had a couple of people that worked for me over the years who have gone on to be CMOs of companies, and that makes me prouder than anything else. Um, I've also had people who realized marketing wasn't their thing, and they've gone on to do great things in other disciplines, and they're happy and successful, and that makes me really proud as well. So I, I'd say kind of being able to see um, the people that I've had the pleasure and opportunity of working with and develop over the years become great leaders on their own is something I'm the most proud of. Hello. So my question is, how does uh, corporate social responsibility and employee morale affect the long-term success of a company, and how does that translate into sales, and how... Are companies paying a lot of attention to that more now than before? So, yes. I think companies are definitely paying more attention to it now relative to 10 years ago, a decade ago. Um, but I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but I recently saw a talk where the um, HBS or Harvard Business School was looking at companies that were focused on, on purpose-driven, dri purpose-driven versus companies versus non-purpose-driven companies and looking at the returns of those companies over time. And in general, they're better, but not statistically so significantly better, which is interesting to me because I think that will change. Personally, I think that will change over time. Um, where, as, as I believe the millennial generation really cares a lot about working for a purpose-driven company. I've seen it in my own employees, um, and I've seen it in the customers and what they tend to care about. And I see, think that that will become a prerequisite for companies to be successful in the future, not necessarily like whether one's bet you know has a more important social purpose versus or not, but almost a prerequisite for existence, I think. But I don't have the data to back that up. That's just my gut. <laughs> I have a question for you. While yeah. um, somebody else might be thinking, it at your time at at HBS, um, if you can think back to the time that that you were an MBA student, a lot of our our audience members here are students or, or recent alumni. What, what were some of the lessons that you took from your time in school that really served you well in your career? Um, and if there were things that you wished you would have spent more time on yes. while you were on school, in school, um, what, would, what would those things be? Yes. I, you know, I, I mean, I loved my, my experience in business school. I thought it was phenomenal. Um, 
I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working with, in marketing-related type projects, et cetera, so I'm glad about that. I would have done that. <laughs> um, I took a couple of classes based on the professor. Um, I took an agribusiness class which, you know, I know is, is near and dear to UC Davis's heart, but wasn't actually an interest of mine. Surprised <laughs> they have that at Harvard. <laughs> um, but the professor was phenomenal, and he brought in the CMO, CEOs and CMOs of all these phenomenal companies across, like Cargill and, um, and uh, I'm trying to remember, a couple of the wineries and, and um, brewing companies, et cetera. And it would made a material difference for me to hear from the founders of these companies or the leaders of these companies and what it took to be successful. And, and I think what I mostly learned from HBS was about leadership and how to be a leader and how to drive a business forward. I, you know, over my last six years, I've been the mar- head of marketing plus a GM of a company or a part of the company. So most recently, I was the head of the digital business at Banana Republic. Before that, I was the head of the international outlet business, all while being the head of marketing. And that mindset of like what it takes to push a company forward um, I think I learned that from Harvard, or at least I got exposure to it. I mean, this was just one or two years ago. So I got some exposure to it. Um, and that, that really has been set with me, and it's something that I know I love and I'm passionate about. So I look at marketing as a means to an end to drive the company forward, not necessarily as like that's my f- only favorite part mm-hmm. about work or business. And when you say that mindset about... You the know, general management maybe, mindset? Yeah, and the sort of leadership mindset. What, what are some components of that mindset? So for me, i just constantly having to think about the bigger picture as opposed to one function or one business. Um, making clear, always prioritizing, like prioritizing and then making clear trade-offs and being vocal about the trade-offs. What are you leaving behind so that you can do this really well? Mm-hmm. That's a part of that mindset. Um, the always people first, whether it's the customer first or whether it's the team first, but thinking about that very strategically in terms of like how is that, how is this strong team going to be able to push us forward? I think that's part of being a leader as well in that mindset. Um, so those are some lessons just off the top of my head. Yeah. And and were there any things you, uh, looking back, you wish you would have done more of? Um, it's hard to probably hard to answer that question, but things- so so I so when I graduated. You know, Amazon was just taking off, and some of the early stage e-commerce companies were just taking off. And I, I spent two years in McKinsey afterwards, and then I came, moved out here to work for .com, which was a phenomenal experience. I wish I had done more around technology in business school, or probably more around the VC world in business school, because I had a lot of friends that were going and would end up doing that. Um, but I was thinking more about traditional marketing. Okay. So just explore more. Experiment. Just explore more. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, Joy. Go ahead, take it. Just push the push. The green light. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So in honor of our alumni awardees and the things they said, you've all achieved such great things. But I also I'm just curious, there's a great balance that needs to happen for you to have a full life. Because I know you're not just your C V. So I would love to hear any thoughts or advice you have for folks about making sure that you're a whole person and not just receive Absolutely. So I am the mother of three children, and I'm still married to my fabulous husband of 14 years. That's a big deal. <laughs> um, so I have, I have a 10-year-old son, an 8-year-old son, a 6-year-old daughter. And I, you know, I, I have been working full-time since they were born, well, well before they were born. And I, 
I think it's a series of choices. And I don't, for me, it's not a long-term choice, do I want to work or not? It's every day, how am I going to think about this day to put my family first when they need to be first, to put my job first when that needs to be first, and how am I going to make that, that trade-off and that balance? And it really is an everyday choice. And there are, there are days where I don't work as hard because my daughter has a performance, and that's the most important thing to me on that day, and I make that happen. I may work a little bit later that night, but that's okay because I've gotten out of that day what I really wanted to get out of that day. Um, it's important to me to work just because I, 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 I like it. I'm, it's fun. Um, it's also important to me to be a role model for my children, my, my boys and my daughter, that they can, they, this is what a working mom looks like because I want them to think about balance in, in their life to come in the future. Um, and I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, but I do think it's, it, is, it is not easy at all. And, um, and there are times where I feel like a failure on both fronts, probably a third if I could think of a third. Um, <laughs> I also like to work out, so that's always in the mix too, um, just for myself. Uh, but that's, like, it is really, life is a series of trade-offs, and each day is, is a decision in and of itself. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Do we, yeah, we have another question. Hi, you had um, spoken about the outlets and the customer she, what she liked, depending on the millennial or the Gen X. Can you kind of expand, like, what did the millennial or Gen X, what did you find when you did that? In terms of the actual products or outfits they liked? Yeah, I think or? you were saying that um, sometimes they were deal-centric or they were, yes. like, product-centric or brand-centric. What did you find? So, in general, the outlet shopper is not a millennial customer. It's a Gen X customer, and they are very much, they, the, the brand has to be within their consideration set. So, for example, when they go to the outlets, they'll generally visit eight stores. Those have to be well-known brands that they trust and they respect. And then they are looking for a deal. And they're looking for a deal because they want to be able to tell their friends and their family, here's how much I saved. Um, not how much I spent. I spent. We call it spaving, <laughs> right? Um, and that, that makes them very proud. And they love the treasure hunt aspect of it, like finding that awesome deal and looking fantastic. And the, honestly, the value for money perspective. Um, that isn't what I found with the millennial customer. I found the millennial customer to be a little bit more about, um, not all of them, but, but a little bit more trend-centric versus um, kind of value for money-centric. Um, and a little bit more about... Um, I don't influencing friends. I don't want to say impressing friends, but influencing friends um, or following friends too. There are basically a couple of different customer segments in there. Um, so not everybody is a trendsetter who wants to set the trend. Um, but in general, the outlet shoppers are are a little bit older, um, and that um, that probably is going to change over time as well. You never know. As outlets go more and more online, I think more people will accept, access them as well. Interesting. We have time for one about one more question. Just Somebody have one last question? Yeah, Brian. It, it, she's right behind you. Hello, thank you. Uh, I'm just more curious about your uh, educational background and how you transitioned from having a uh, getting an English degree from Princeton and then an MBA from Harvard. Kim asked uh, me, "How did you get a yeah. job?" Like basically, well, you graduated from English with, from Princeton. Yeah. If you could just provide just a small journey into the challenges that you encountered 
from an English degree and then getting into business, what inspired you to go into the business field and then why marketing? Absolutely. Um, so I did graduate with an English degree from Princeton. I was lucky enough to get a job for a ma- with a management consulting firm after um, undergraduate. And I, um, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but it sounded interesting. It sounded like a a continuation of learning. Um, I would work across industries, across functional areas. It was a pretty heavy financial, financially oriented consulting firm. It was called Maricon Associates, um, and they're still in existence today. And so I basically got a hands-on economics degree um, over my three years working with them, and I worked across 12 different industries. So snack foods, um, liquor and spirits, um, pharmaceuticals, healthcare. I mean, I really worked across a variety of different industries. And that was fascinating. I felt like I got a continuation. The, the assignments that I liked the most were in marketing um, and were more customer-centric. And so I worked, I remember specifically I worked on a, on a project for Estee Lauder, helping them think about positioning um, some of their makeup and, and skin care back then. This is right when they bought Origins and like right when they're thinking about how do you expand into different types of skin care. And I, um, I loved that type of problem and thinking about what would resonate with the customer and then you know, how much should they actually spend on that as a part, as a part of their whole portfolio, et cetera. Um, and so that got me interested. I was interested in business and thought I was going to go into marketing. In between my two years at, at Harvard, I came out here and worked for Clorox um, on Brita water filtration systems and had that type of experience, more in co- like traditional consumer packaged goods marketing, um, and thought that was really interesting and fascinating. Um, and then I um, got lucky enough to get a job at McKinsey um, after business school, and I thought to myself, this would be a great continuation of learning, but I, part of me was not 100% sure I wanted to do that because I was still kind of thinking maybe I wanted to go and work for a company. But what I heard from the folks at McKinsey is you can always go work for a company. You can have this rare opportunity to work for McKinsey. Um, so I did it for two years, and I moved out here because the dot-com boom was happening, and it sounded like, wow, if I actually want to understand customer behavior, why not go work where it's happening on the Internet? And so this was very early for many of y'all, y'all were probably not born, but <laughs> but it was fantastic because I really got insight into how customers behave much faster than any other job I had been um, exposed to. So, interesting. Okay, well, this has been a great conversation, really insightful, and I want to um, thank you for the conversation and join me in thanking Amy for her insights tonight. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.